Hey, my dear patrons and listeners. I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast, and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah 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 blah, whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org slash contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org slash contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the second in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Fall 2019 speaker series, Nuclear Fallout, Science, and Society in Eurasia. From 1949 to 1989, the Soviet Union conducted 456 nuclear tests at the Semipalatinsk nuclear test site in Kazakhstan. Despite decades of nuclear fallout, Kazakh rural communities eke out a life and even come to understand themselves as radioactive mutants of the test site. So just how has living around a nuclear test site shaped these communities and their post-Soviet experience? Here's Magdalena Stolkovsky on her ethnographic work around the site and the ways Semipalatinsk shapes the economy, environment, and subjectivities. Magdalena Stolkovsky is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and a faculty associate at the Walker Institute for International Studies at the University of South Carolina. She's the author of several articles, most recently, Radiophobia Had to be Invented, published in Culture, Theory, and Critique in 2017, and Life on an Atomic Collective, the post-Soviet retreat of the state in rural Kazakhstan, published in Etudes Royale in also in 2017. Here's Magdalena Stokowski. So you, uh, you study uh, everyday life in a village called Koyan, which of course is a, is a pseudonym. It's not the real name of the village. Uh, around the semi-Palatinsk nuclear test site or the polygon, as it's called, in, in Kazakhstan. So I'd like to start by just asking you, how did you get involved and interested in this topic? Um, 
the first time I went to Kazakhstan was in 2007 on a project uh, that looked at and examined Polish populations living in the northern regions of Kazakhstan. One of the questions that I had at the time was, how is it possible that you have a population of Poles or self-described Poles, some 40,000 of them or so, um, retaining a sense of Polish ethnic identity? The reasons for this work were that as a child, um, I heard stories from my grandparents uh, about Kazakhstan. They themselves were deported to the region in 1941. So I was interested in Kazakhstan probably from the time I was eight. Um, and I went there, and one of the things that I started hearing about was the Semipalatinsk nuclear test site. And I actually didn't know that the Soviets had a nuclear test site there, uh, nor that people lived in and around it. And that's one of the things that I heard. Um, I was quite intrigued because one of the things that I was hearing is that the test site is open and that people are living on the territory, um, navigating that radioactive landscape. So I was fascinated with it. And when I returned uh, back home, I decided to change my research. And mind you, I was already two years in doing this research on Poles in Kazakhstan. So it was a big learning curve. Um, and I was intent on studying this region. My big question, my driving question, uh, was why is it that people don't leave? How is it possible that we have this vast landscape, radioactive landscape, at least that's what I, I heard, and people are still living there? So I returned uh, to Colorado, University of Colorado Boulder at the time, wrote my grant, and decided I'm going to go back to the Polygon, study three villages, and, and, and wrote this um, grant that at this time seems completely absurd. Um, and when I arrived, I went to the city of Karaganda, which became my base, um, and affiliated with a local environmental, non-governmental organization. Uh, and they looked at my grant and they laughed at me. And in essence, they said, you're going to need $250,000 to do this sort of research. But here is a site that may be of interest to you. So one of the things that the NGO suggested I do was that I focus on a unique village that I ended up calling Koyan, that is one of the closest villages located to ground zero for atmospheric tests on the polygon but a site that's simultaneously considered to be one of the least polluted. And site, too, where not a lot of people or scientists have done research. So I decided to change my work and ended up in Koyan. And so talk about the, the history of this area and, and the polygon and, and what a, how, describe it for us, what, what the people there and the, the environment. So the Polygon is a 7,000 square mile area, so roughly the size of Belgium. It's topographically uh, unique in many ways. So these are vast steppe landscapes, uh, virtually treeless, resembling something like Kansas or Nebraska um, or South Dakota. Um, it's a territory that was chosen for a variety of reasons by the Soviets. It was chosen by the Soviets for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them being is that the region itself wasn't um, populated, or it was populated, but there weren't too many people living in the area. 
Another reason why the site was chosen is that it is topographically varied. Um, so even though those are steppe landscapes, what you do have are little mountain ranges, uh, valleys, so on and so forth. Between 1949 and 1989, the Soviets tested some 456 nuclear devices on the territory itself. Uh, they divided the territory in, in, in the following way. The northern site um, was designated as ground zero for above ground nuclear tests. So those are all your atmospheric tests. The eastern side, the Balapan range, was designated for all the underground borehole explosions. The western side was where all the cratering explosions took place. So underground explosions uh, that some of them actually ended up producing um, atomic lakes. They also chose an area in the south southern part of the site known as the Degelen uh, site. Um, it's a mountain range in which the Soviets tested uh, nuclear weapons in vertical uh, tunnels inside the mountain ranges. So it allowed for a variety of tests to occur. When I mentioned that the site itself had 456 uh, nuclear tests conducted on its territory, that number is the number that's frequently cited. Uh, that number in its own right is quite problematic because what this means is that there were 456 tests, but each test could have had three, four, five nuclear devices. So a number of devices is closer to 750 or so that uh, were tested on this territory. Today, what we have is, since the test site was closed in 1991, and we'll talk about, I'll talk about that a little bit later, the site is virtually open. And what that means is that there is no physical border around the test site itself. So anyone can enter the site if they wish, except for an area around the Degelen mountain complex where there is uh, enriched uranium or weapons grade, I mean, I'm sorry, weapons grade plutonium uh, that is a nuclear weapons proliferation risk. Um, that site itself is enclosed by a perimeter fence. It is guarded by drones and no one can enter there, right? But besides that, people can move in, in and out of the site as they wish. There are virtually no signs on the test site to warn people that there is radioactive uh, radiation in the region. Um, there are a few signs. Uh, many of them, the ones that are left, are weathered and um, look something like this um, that you have here. The site itself in a, is administered by the um, Institute of Radiation Safety and Ecology uh, today, and that center is in charge of uh, looking at radioactive, uh, residual radioactivity, uh, the sort of radioisotopes uh, that are on the site itself and measuring where radiation um, is located. And, and so what about the people? What about the people? So today there are about 40,000 people living in and around the polygon. One of the things to keep in mind is that we like to put borders around things and we draw maps um, and we create a map of the polygon and say, look, this is the polygon. But the reality is that during the Soviet era, as now, this is an overlapping landscape. So this is a landscape that both hosted nuclear testing 
right? Both for peaceful and, and military uses. But also, this was a place, uh, or one of the places, uh, where the Soviets deployed their Virgin Lands campaign. So from 1954 onwards, a lot of the villages in and around what is today the Polygon were actually part of vast Sovhoz collectives, right? Government uh, collective farms where they were in charge of livestock breeding and uh, growing wheat. Uh, a lot of the people ended up living, for example, so we have one site known as the Balapan field that I mentioned. So there is that plashatka or that area, but in and around it, people would collect hay that then would be used to feed livestock, right? So as it is now, the site itself was open then as well. Uh, so today people live, continue to live in some of the Zimovki or winter pastures uh, that have not been abandoned, that are officially on the territory of the polygon, um, as well as around the border of the test site itself. Most of them today have reestablished themselves um, in a certain sense as atomic collectives, right? They have retained their sense of collective identity and they continue to do livestock breeding in this area and collect hay as well as grow wheat in, in some instances. So are they, are they old? Are they, so when the, when there were nuclear testing being done in that area. Were there inhabitants around around the outer rim of the test site, or did people move back in after 1989 when the testing stopped? No, people have lived here for generations. So majority of people, before the test site was uh, founded in 1949, uh, ethnic Kazakhs uh, lived in this, in this region. With the Virgin Lands, of course, what we started to get at that time was an influx of other populations, Tatars, Germans, Ukrainians, Poles, and other people coming into the region uh, to work on uh, the Virgin Lands project, right, to participate uh, in farming and agriculture and so on and so forth. When the tests were happening, uh, so people were told, for example, there will be a test. It's scheduled for this day and this day, and it's going to happen. So what we need you to do is to exit your house so that none of the things in your house are going to fall on your head, right? So if accidentally the, the shaking is um, too excessive, you want to exit your house. So people were told to leave their homes when the testing occurred and then return and go back to what it is that they're doing. The problem, of course, was that no one was really told what was happening, right? So people knew that there were some sort of tests. They knew and saw and people described frequently the mushroom clouds and earth shaking and so on and so forth. Um, but people weren't aware that there's radiation danger. People weren't aware that, you know, there's going to be fallout uh, blanketing their villages and, and making people sick. So people were unable to even connect the two events. They knew something is happening, but they didn't know what exactly. Not until 1989. Now, did, did the authorities treat them as a as an experimental population? Because here I'm thinking of, you know, when I watching this documentary, Atomic Cafe, which is about American nuclear testing, um, it, they were very conscious in thinking of you know, populations around test sites is also places to experiment on the effects of radiation. It, was this the case for the Soviet authorities? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, 
And a complicated one, I think. It is difficult for me to say, um, and the archives themselves don't bear this out, of whether the Soviets plan to put up a test site and then enroll entire populations into this vast biological experiment. But what ended up happening was that you did have tests and people were writing reports to Moscow that they're getting sick, right? So authorities in Moscow sent out expeditions to see what was happening in the region. And one of such expedition actually returned an entire report uh, where they described what they ended up calling the Kainar syndrome. And Kainar syndrome is, Kainar is the name of a village uh, that they studied that was affected by fallout. And they were describing uh, what was happening to the people, right? And all of a sudden, it seems to me that it is at that moment uh, in 1957 that the Soviet authorities realized that this is, in essence, that the polygon could become a wonderful, in many ways, a laboratory to see what the effects on people and animals and the environment are. Remember that up to, for, for a long time, people really didn't understand or know what the effects of radiation are. Right, we have a photograph of Oppenheimer, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, and Leslie Groves standing on Ground Zero after the Trinity test. Right, people just didn't know. So this, people were enrolled in this experiment because it was an opportunity. Yeah, I mean that that's what it seems to me too. That it's kind of you know you have people there, so you know why not deploy people to study them? But what one of the things I find fascinating in, in the articles you've written is the people living around in these areas around the test site have a really complicated relationship to, in the, how they understand themselves vis-a-vis being, you know, I'll just use the word victims of radiation te or nuclear testing and how unlike, say, people living around Chernobyl, these Cossack villagers didn't really have a consciousness of, you know, the legacies of the test site. So um, how do these villagers understand the test site today and their relationship to it? I mean, in many ways, they do have a consciousness of radiation and they do have a consciousness of seeing themselves in the particular light vis-a-vis -vis nuclear testing. But it is very different what we are finding in places like Chernobyl or what we're finding in the Marshall Islands. In Kazakhstan, and specifically among people living in and around the Polygon, people have come to see themselves as adapted to radiation. So much so, in fact, that they see leaving the place as actually posing more harm to them than staying put, right? In essence, what they're saying is that Chiste uh, which means clean air is our death, uh, something that people have said to me repeatedly. In essence, people see themselves as mutants, sort of in a similar way as, as you know, the sort of mutants we, we think of when, uh, of atomic age, right? Spider-Man or um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, or anybody else, right? Um, those figures, right? Um, they see themselves in a similar light as adapted to radioactivity, right? And how, do you, how do you explain there are many, yeah, that's a, also a great question and uh, quite complicated to answer. There are many, many reasons uh, for why 
people have come to embrace residual radioactivity. Um, and much of that has to do actually with the ways in which others see the people who live in and around the test site. So let me just give you a couple of them. Um, in Kazakhstan, a lot of people who live in and around the polygon are presented as victims of Soviet-era nuclear testing. Not only as victims, but people who carry genetic damage from nuclear tests in their bodies, right? And people who, in essence, as these damaged individuals, transmit their damaged DNA from one generation to the next, right? Um, there are lots of um, shows or, or, or news stories in Kazakhstan about the mutants of the polygon. Um, if one ever finds themselves at the Semye Medical University in Kazakhstan, in the city of Semye, um, there is actually an anatomical museum that describes and presents mutants that, um, or mutant fetuses, if you will, uh, fetuses born with, you know, or unborn with two heads or cyclops, right? So on and so forth. Um, when it comes to the sort of public perception of people who live in and around the polygon, they're seen as potential mutants. So, so you have that uh, vision of those populations. There's actually a term for those people. They're known as the polygonskia. And polygonskia as a term, or people of the polygon, carries many connotations. One, that they're mutants or potential mutants. Two, that they're backwards, quote unquote, primitive, traditional, right? The second um, sort of reason why um, the discourse around people living in and around the polygon comes from the scientific community. So as far as we know, um, or at least as it is accepted in Western scientific um, understanding of low-dose radiation, right, um, studies that are based on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, bombings, um, what we know is that high doses of radiation um, cause damage, right? Could be genetic damage, but the exposure to high doses can cause cancer, so on and so forth. What we certainly don't know is what the effects are at lower doses, the sorts of uh, doses one can get from, let's say, living near um, the damaged uh, Fukushima plant or in and around um, Chernobyl, for example. The low-dose radiation um, or sort of the effects of low-dose low dose radiation are a highly contentious topic. This is something that scientists have been deba debating for over 100 years. Um, in the United States, the ways in which we understand low-dose um, exposure is that at low doses, damage is statistically insignificant. Right, and expo the, the dose is proportional to effect. So in low doses, the effects are small, and none of the damage, if there even is any damage, can be transmitted from one generation to the next. However, in Kazakhstan, scientists are finding something very different. 
So for example, in 2002, um, geneticist Yuri Dubrova studied populations in and around Semipalatinsk. And what he and his research team found was that populations in and around the polygon have higher rates of mutations in their junk DNA, right? And not only that, but that these mutations, this damage, or what seems like damage, is transmitted from one generation to the next, which is something that none of the Western um, scientific studies on low-dose effects have actually found. Those, that that uh, sort of finding has, for example, not been found in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki populations. In Kazakhstan, these studies are now taken as fact, even though they're highly contentious and debatable. And of course, we don't really know uh, what it means that somebody has higher or, or larger number of mutations. Does the higher number of mutations translate into, for example, uh, people born with physical deformities? We actually don't know that. But in Kazakhstan, this is taken as fact. And people today, for example, some physicians um, and Kazakhstani authorities are talking about, for example, uh, use, starting to use genetic passports in order to prevent what they describe as a potential genetic catastrophe for the Kazakh nation, right, as a result of these studies. Now, when polygon populations, specifically Koyaners, see stories about mutants, see stories about genetic mutations and children born with two heads or one eye and so on and so forth, they don't see them on themselves. Right? They don't see a lot of the people who are born there, they're comp they don't look like the Cyclops or they don't have any of the problems that are described in the media or by government officials and scientists in Kazakhstan. So in essence, for them, this serves as proof, hey, we're not mutants. And actually our own illnesses, whether it's cardiovascular problems, some cancers, uh, skin condition, so on and so forth, are actually a manifestation of this adaptation. We are sick, but we don't die. And actually, we only die when we move away from places like Koyan. And in many ways, this is actually quite true. Because what happens to the people who move away from Koyan? We have to remember that many of the Koyaners um, are people um, whose parents were trained as tractor drivers, as hay collectors, as people perfect, uh, perfectly trained to work on Soviet collective farm, right? They don't have the skills required to work in, you know, big cities like Astana, which today is called Nur Sultan, um, or Almaty, for example, where those skills are completely irrelevant. What that means is that people end up living in the periphery of cities like Karaganda or Astana in poverty, um, in you know, small apartments where they are reliant on actually getting a job, which usually translates to working at a bazaar or cleaning toilets somewhere, or working maybe in a store somewhere. Else. So does this this identity of of you know somebody who is a, a byproduct of this radioactive site where if you leave this is what will cause you to die it has I'm trying to so how does this is this identity in a way also a reaction to 
you know, the changing social and economic life of Kazakhstan since the collapse of the Soviet system? Absolutely. Um, not having economic options means that one way to survive uh, is to stay put. And in many ways, one can imagine what the villagers do in Koyan as an atomic collective in that all the animals are, in essence, a bank, right? All the animals that are there, um, you know, could be sold at a bazaar um, in exchange for money, right? Um, people don't have a lot of options. So this kind of mutant subjectivity that I describe, right, um, is a survival strategy, is a survival strategy in a, in, in a place that has been abandoned and sort of delinked from the larger Soviet network of collective farms, right? And they're also excluded too. Yes, and I they're mean, this of course the excluded. And, and, you know, the idea that they're polygonsky means that they're also polluted. Right which means that people don't want to interact with the communities that they perceive not only as genetically tainted, but also as backwards, as traditional, as unmodern. So there are lots of different things happening here, right? Um, the vision of rural communities as too backwards to participate in modernizing Kazakh experiment. So, so where does this leave something like, uh, you know, a, an identity of oneself as a victim or a community as victims of, you know, Soviet nuclear testing like we see in other examples, whether it be Chernobyl or in other places around the world where there's been nuclear disasters. So where does the, an, an identity of victimhood fit into this? Because at the same time, you know, people see them as this radioactive waste and other of society to be kind of quarantined at this there is a there is also somewhat of a recognition of them as victims so how do they consider themselves vis-a-vis -vis this this identity or positionality the Kazakh government um, actually recognized something like 1.2 million victims of Soviet era nuclear testing and they actually put into place a program uh, that compensates these people for their suffering, right? So some people who lived in villages that were relatively close to the test site uh, received a higher payment than people who were further away, right? Um, so people were recognized as victims. People in Koyan, of course, belonged to class three of victimhood, which means that they were only compensated a one-time fee of something like $50, which even for Kazakhstan standards is very, very little, right? Um, and that's about as far as it went when it came to compensation, right? Kazakhstan still sees itself as a nation and as a people see themselves as victims of Soviet-era nuclear testing. The interesting thing, of course, is, is that the further one moves away from the test site, the more afraid of nuclear testing people become, while the closer one is, the more sort of embracing of residual radioactivity people are, right? So Koyaners see themselves as victims. We have to remember that they were actually, in fact, enrolled in the secret experiment, right? Um, there was a clinic set up known as Antibrucellosis Dispensary Number 4. It was, in essence, a fake hospital there to treat zoonotic diseases. 
So people were being brought into the secret hospital where people pretended to treat those diseases, but in effect, what they were doing was collecting intergenerational data on radiation exposure. And they had a cohort of something like 20 or 30,000 people that they followed from one generation to the next to see what the effects are, right? Um, so Koyaners knew that, they remember that, especially the older generation um, of people who, who remained there. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were scientists who were coming in and collecting data as well, collecting blood samples, for example, semen samples, um, hair samples, just to see if people, let's say, are ingesting radionuclides. None of this data was shared with Koyaners. So they continuously see themselves as, look, we're victimized by this. We're victimized by the society as a whole, right, by being seen in a particular light. Um, yes, we are victims, but we're not the sort of victims to ask for things. And we actually um, are going to stay put no matter what. And in essence, um, being a victim for many of the Koyaners is sort of like giving up um, their strength because they are truly committed to staying put where they are. And any talk of people being moved is met with utter resistance. And there have been attempts. Their electricity has been shut off. Remember, Koyan is in the middle of steppe lands. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, there is no road. The nearest asphalt road is about 100 kilometers away. Um, it is difficult to get in and out. In winter, it is completely blocked off, and electricity is at most intermittent. Um, there is no plumbing. There is no medical clinic. There is no school. There is no store, right? So from time to time, their electricity is shut off on purpose to try to get people to move to the next uh, village nearby that actually has electricity and some stores, and people refuse to do that. Hello, this is Alexei Yerchuk from Berkeley, California, and you're listening to the SRB podcast. SRB is extremely informative and quite omnivorous, and this is why I listen. Thank you. So how, how did they regard you showing up? You know, this scholar from Colorado uh, who originally came here to and you know look into Poles who were deported in the Soviet era. What? How did they? Especially considering all sorts of manner of experts had been coming into their villages for you know decades. So how did they? How did you negotiate that your presence as a researcher with them? I had an introduction from the NGO, from the director of the NGO, to one of the the um, families in the village. So this was my end. But remember, I'm coming from Colorado. I am an anthropologist. I am studying, you know, Koyan as a place to answer a question why people don't leave. Um, at first, it took probably two months for people to not think of me as an American spy that is uh, sort of strange because I speak Russian with seemingly Ukrainian accent. Um, <laughs> but I have a Polish name, but I'm from the United States. And on top of that, I'm from Colorado. And if for, for people who are familiar with the Koloratsky Zhuk, that really wasn't helpful. So Koloratsky Zhuk is a story that um, supposedly during the Cold War, Americans um, 
let loose the Colorado beetle on Kazakhstan and other places in the Soviet Union uh, to uh, sort of create a potato blight and creating failed harvests for years to come. So here I am from Colorado studying nuclear issues and asking questions about why aren't you afraid of radiation? Where's their radiation? So on and so forth. So it took a while, but I did have what we could call in anthropology a Geertsian moment, a moment of acceptance. So when I arrived to Kazakhstan and to the village in September, at the end of October, uh, there were steppe fires. Now, that's one of the things to keep in mind. Steppe lands naturally have seasonal fires. What that means is that grasses burn. And there are many reasons for that. Lightning, somebody throws out a cigarette, an old lada is going to spark somewhere and catch the tall grasses on fire. What this means is that the fire burns through the test site. It goes through all the craters, it goes through ground zero, and all the way to the former administrative center of the Soviet atomic bomb project, the city of Kurchatov, formerly known as Moscow 400. When I arrived, this sort of fire happened. And these fires are quite dangerous because what that also means, especially for people living in Koyan, is that their animal feed is going to go down with that fire. So the hay that was collected started to burn. So what do we have to do? Um, we had to get in the car and drive from one fire line to the next and put out the fires the best way we knew how, which is to attach sheepskins to long poles and hit the ground with them to put out the fire, right? So that's what I did for probably four days. And this was in essence one way to say, you know, Magda couldn't be, um, you know, couldn't be a spy, she's, she's, she's here to help us. Um, in time, people, I was proof. I became proof, in essence, of adaptation. I had one scientist use me as an example of, of the ability to adapt to a radioactive environment by saying, look, Magda lived in Koyan for two years. Does she look mutated? No, she doesn't. We are all fine. Um, it's possible to adapt. And people would warn me, if I leave, something bad may happen to me. Um, knock knock. Nothing has happened yet. <laughs> so then, so in one of your articles, um, it, it, the title is great. I mean, your some of the, your, several of your articles have good, great titles, but this one is about the concept of radiophobia, and it said radio. It, it, the title is radiophobia had to be invented. So, so what is radiophobia, and why did it have to be invented? Radiophobia refers to the irrational fear of radiation. It's a term that was first deployed um, after Chernobyl um, and popularized with Chernobyl Forum, um, a sort of a report that described the effects of um, Chernobyl accident on population, on populations living in and around um, the Chernobyl uh, zone. One of the things that, one of the findings of this report were, were was that there was not too much harm done, that in effect, the biggest problem was people suffering from anxiety, increased depression, so on and so forth, psychosomatic problems as a result of the fear. So it wasn't that radiation was the problem, it was actually that fear was the problem. It is not to say that 
psychological stress has not been used um, to describe people's reactions to nuclear testing or, or nuclear accidents. Um, psych is psychosomatic stress has been described in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. It has been described among Three Mile Island um, um, populations, so on and so forth. But the term radiophobia itself, as irrational fear of radiation was only used with Chernobyl. Although prior to that, radiophobia ref referred to the irrational fear of x-rays. And the reason why I say it had to be reinvented um, in Kazakhstan specifically. Um, so radiophobia today in Kazakhstan, the ways in which it operates, whenever somebody complains about radiation or, you know, wanting to measure radioactivity and where things are on the polygon, um, they're labeled as being as radiophobic, right? As suffering from radiophobia. Right. Um, in Kazakhstan, this is what is used to dismiss a lot of the claims that people have about their illnesses. Now, Kazakhstan emerges from Soviet collapse in 1991 as probably one of the most polluted uh, places in the world with hazardous materials in general. Um, Kazakhstan was, in many ways, an experimental landscape for the Soviet, uh, for the Soviet Union. This is where we have, you know, atomic testing. This is where we have the Virgin Lands project that used a lot of DDT, right, to protect crops. Uh, this is a place of the Baikonur Cosmodrome um, that is still operational today. That is actually polluting the territory, including the test site today, with heptofuel, which is quite poisonous, right? And, um, and I'd like to add, it's also the dumping ground of special settlers from collectivization. It yes. was a place of gulags. It was a yes. place for all sorts of people who are exiled. Yes, in the and Soviet it's a place system. of mining. This is right. where gold, uranium, I mean, Kazakhstan is the world's number one producer of uranium uh, today, overtaking Canada and Australia, right? Um, in very short, in a short period of time. Um, so, it is very difficult for Kazakhstan to deal with pollution. And then you have the issue of, you know, toxic layering. How do we know that certain diseases are not caused by, let's say, smoking or drinking or, or people not eating uh, the right foods versus, you know, radiation exposure? So I argue, at least in the, ca in the case of the polygon, um, Radiophobia is one way to deal with a toxic environment. That's really not uh, one that can be cleaned easily. It is impossible to clean up a radioactive landscape, one that's polluted with um, elements such as plutonium that has a half-life of 24,000 years, or cesium, or strontium, or americium, or any other uh, countless elements. So where, where, does, where does the polygon fit either uh, materially or even symbolically in Kazakhstan's post-socialist economic development. I mean, it's it sounds like in some ways it's a microcosm of, you know, many aspects of the, you know, of the country itself. Polygon, as I mentioned earlier, is a vast territory. It's also rich in various mineral um, 
you know, resources. So, for example, um, on the test site today and for and for the long time for a long time now, uh, there is the Karajara coal mine. It's one of the largest. It's not the largest, but it's one of the larger coal mines operating in the region. The coal mine itself is actually located on the Balapan. Uh, testing field where some 105 borehole explosions took place. So this coal today is, you know, mined on the test site and then sold to, you know, in and around um, the region, right? There's, there are gold deposits on the test site that are also mined, as well as fluorite, salt, manganese, right? So there are already businesses operating on the test site itself. So there's huge economic potential there. And both mining companies, as well as Koyaners themselves, see it as a way for them to become economically self-sufficient, right? Um, so that's already happening there. At the same time, the site is symbolic of the sort of suffering that Kazakhs endured during the Soviet era. So it has this dual identity. There's also some talk about turning the site into a UNESCO heritage site, um, as well as, and it, and, and it has continued to be, a site for laboratory experiments, right? So if you want to study and try to understand how radionuclides migrate, the Polygon is a perfect place to do that, and a perfect place to test methods um, of the ways in which we can actually study this. What is amazing to me is that at this time, there are virtually no studies, there are very, very few, uh, literally a handful of studies that look at residual radiation and effects on current populations. So people are not really looking at is radioactive, are the radioactive elements migrating in and out of the site? Are people consuming uh, products and livestock that may or may not be contaminated with residual radioactivity. Um, so none of the studies are, are being carried out today. Hmm. And, and why do you think so? Do you have a speculation? Yes, and, and, and my um, sort of understanding of it is that it would be actually, it's quite difficult to do an epidemiological study like that on the polygon without creating... Um, kind of a political um, situation out of that. Can you paint a picture of the, the, the levels of contamination and the ways in which people are exposed to it in terms of consuming products and the general environment? Um, and then uh, what, kind of, what kind of work are NGOs doing in, in this region around issues of documenting uh, contamination and its effects? So contamination on the test site is quite varied. So for example, uh, one can be in one place and the area could be completely clean um, or they could be, you know, 15 feet away and it could be polluted. Uh, there is, for example, near, near Koyan, about three or four kilometers, there is a crater that's created after, um, from a nuclear explosion. And the crater itself has varied um, you know, radiation contamination, right? Um, in one area of the site, when I measured it, uh, when I measured radioactivity with my Geiger counter, um, one could get a yearly average dose, right? Um, which is about 650 millirem per year in about four weeks of being there, 
right? That a lot? Yes, I mean, it's a lot in a sense of that there is an increase with the higher the dose one gets, right? There is a higher chance of developing, let's say, cancer. And cancer, especially thyroid cancer, has been the agreed upon um, radiation effect, right? Cancer, leukemia, and several other things. Um, people enter the site every day, right? So from Koyan, people take their animals to go out into the pastures where, you know, and they hang around on a test site all day. And most of those people are men, right? Chaban um, herders. And the craters from time to time become quite convenient watering holes. So the animals go in um, to drink from those lakes. Uh, people go in with them. And people are constantly getting exposed. Now, how much are they getting? Nobody is following anyone to see how much exposure people are getting, right? So we actually don't know what, what, what is happening there, right? So yes, some places radioactivity is quite high and that's external exposure, right? Exposure that one gets just by being in the place. Um, but then there is also contamination that's internal, right? Um, that comes from, let's say, eating contaminated meat or drinking well water, right? Um, or inhaling radionuclides like plutonium during, let's say, the time when everybody's putting out a fire. But no one is following that. So I actually can't answer the question of how much are people getting. There's no information on that. The site where people live in Koyan and other villages in and around the polygon are considered safe and exposure negligible, which means it's safe to live there but no one is checking whether people are going to craters or not, so on and so forth, or checking the livestock. And in the case of the non-governmental organizations? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that is happening is that people are using the test site itself to drive through it to get to the nearest cities, which are Kurchatov or Semyei. And I actually did this this summer. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do was to figure out whether it is really the case that it is much shorter to drive, let's say, from Koyan to Kurchatov or Semye through Ground Zero than it is to go around. So I, I, I did this trip this summer, of course, with a Geiger counter, in a Tyvek suit, so on and so forth. I was prepared for this. Um, and I had assistance doing this. And... You know, I drove through the site itself, and what did I see? I saw people traveling uh, from Kurchatov going to other villages across the test site, right? Windows open, no Tyvek suits, none of those things, just driving freely through the site itself, right? What the NGO ended up doing because of this, right, is actually producing several brochures on how to safely drive through the test site. Right. So one of the things they, for example, recommend is that if two or three cars are driving together, which frequently happens and in tandem, for them to keep distance from each other so that the car behind them is not uh, not getting the dust, um, radio potentially radioactive dust into their vehicle, to have windows closed, not to fix cars on the polygon, not to eat food on the polygon, not to wash clothes on the polygon, all of those things. When I showed this brochure to Koyaners, they simply laughed and they said, you know, well, what are we supposed to do? And plus, who cares? 
Right. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. So those are some of the things that the NGOs are trying to do. But um, the government, as well as the Institute of Radiation Safety and Ecology, is saying that, look, those territories are safe and there's nothing to worry about. And any actually worry means that um, people are exhibiting signs of radiophobia. And we don't want radiophobia because we don't want to add additional stress to populations that have already been stressed, right? Because they are already poor and so on and so forth. What is, however, different about Kazakhstan, and I wanna briefly talk about that, um, as opposed to Chernobyl, is that Chernobyl has an exclusion zone. And yes, there are some babushkas that have returned to the exclusion zone and continue to live there and see it as a better place for them to be. The Polygon has no such thing. There is no exclusion zone. There is no place, except for the Degelen mountain complex where one can't get near. There's no such thing as a, you know, a place where people are not allowed to go. If I want to pitch a tent next to a nuclear crater and swim in the lake, um, I am free to do so. This is not me, by the way. Um, this is my colleague. And this is not actually a radioatomic lake, but it is a lake that's on ground zero next to three extremely uh, radioactive lakes. Um, but people swim in, in those atomic lakes um, on hot summer days. Actually, the guy who does the dark tourism tours went to Kazakhstan to swim in Lake Chagan, and it was recorded. Um, so there, there is no such thing. And in effect, there, so, so that's one difference. There is no, there's no exclusion zone. And simultaneously, when people leave Koyan, places like Koyan, um, they do experience certain physical effects. They feel sick. They feel nauseous. They have headaches. They want to get in the car and get back home. They, I, they, you know, I can't say whether it's psychosomatic or whether it's real. It's not like anybody has done a study of whether people can get adapted to radioactivity. I mean, not one that I'm aware of. Um, there has been some research on plants and insects that Timothy Mousseau has done. Um, but besides that, we don't know that. So who knows? Maybe they are really responding to things. So, so what, whatever came of, of all of these studies that were conducted by people from, you know, Moscow during the Soviet period of the, the population around the test site? When the study was done, what it ultimately did is it led to the establishment of the secret clinic, as I mentioned earlier. That secret clinic then enrolled a base population to then follow intergenerationally, right, a cohort. And these people were followed from, I believe, 1958 or so all the way to 1989, and then after, right? So there's still this, this cohort, this longitudinal cohort of um, people who are being studied and followed. What happened after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 was that a lot of the materials were, in fact, taken to Moscow, and they're somewhere there. There are some studies that are very clear and show, for example, you know, what are some of the effects, right? Some of that information, however, has been preserved, and it is housed in the archives today, and one can go in there and actually look at some of these studies. But what has happened with these studies is that they have now become a model for how to design better studies for the estimation of risks, right, um, in the context of risk factor epidemiology, 
right? How do we, for example, extrapolate dose and effect better? So a lot of the Western scientists who are coming into Kazakhstan, they're not there to study the populations and look at risks, but rather to solidify and tweak and perfect their dose, risk dose estimates. That's what's happening to that particular data only. There are, however, some very interesting studies coming out of um, Kazakhstan today. Um, most recently, um, uh, the journal Nature published a story about how Kazakhstani scientists are finding um, interesting um, correlations between exposure and disease, uh, where they're linking cardiovascular health, depression, to past radiation exposure, um, something that has never been found in the Hiroshima-Nagasaki cohort or elsewhere in any Western uh, sort of scientific approach to the studies of radiation. So in terms of the studies of low-dose uh, radiation and its effects and, and your comments about, you know, how much we don't know or can't know or what role do other kind of larger international institutions play in, you know, basically it's in their interest to not allow studies or make studies open about the effects of low-dose radiation? The whole low-dose radiation debate, we can spend hours talking about it, but let me try to simplify it. What we know about low-dose radiation in the United States specifically and the ways in which we actually create safety protocols around radiation exposure comes from Hiroshima and Nagasaki data, period, which means that what has this data, what does uh, following um, survivors and their children and their children's children in Japan, what does the data show? That data shows that, in fact, the biggest danger radiation poses is in high and acute doses. And it poses danger to fetuses in utero when, you know, when exposure happens then. What we also know from this data and later supported by Chernobyl data is that um, thyroid cancer and cases of leukemia, right, are causal, right, that, that large high doses of exposure can cause these effects. This is coming from the Hiroshima-Nagasaki data. What this data also says, and what Western scientists generally say and agree upon, is that effects of radiation exposure cannot be transmitted from one generation to the next. That there is no such thing that uh, somebody gets exposed and they have children in the future and then their children suffer as a result. That's the ways in which our guidelines are structured. Um, you know, the linear model, right? Um, effects are proportional to the dose. At low doses, we simply don't know. We cannot establish causality because we cannot tease out, right? We cannot tease out whether the effects are coming from low-dose radiation or whether they're coming from something else like poor diets or alcohol consumption, right? That's in the West now. In the East, if you will, so studies that are being produced by people in Belarusia, by scientists there, or Ukraine, or Kazakhstan, we're finding something very different. Scientists over there are not only finding that 
people are having higher rates of cancer, right? They're also finding that people are suffering from something that they describe as chronic radiation syndrome, which was first described by Angelina Guskova, right? Chronic radiation syndrome describes a syndrome whereby people are experiencing different sorts of effects, brittle bones, skin conditions, anemia, depression, cardiovascular problems, right? Very different than what we're finding in the West. There are studies in the West that link some cardiovascular problems to radiation exposure, but a lot of these studies are considered unsubstantiated, right? So what we actually have is a Cold War East-West scientific divide where people in Ukraine or Kazakhstan are producing studies that are showing something different than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki studies that have, in fact, become gold standard for the ways in which we understand radiation. That being said, it is important to remember that there is a big difference between one exposure at higher doses from one atomic test versus continuous exposure at not only high doses, acute doses, but also at lower doses chronically over time for let's say 40 or 50 years. A lot of the Soviet studies have been carried out for a really long time, yet they're dismissed by Western scientists as being methodologically unsound. That they're not following sort of the protocols of the ways in which we do radiation science in the, let's say, in the West, more broadly speaking. Is this divide just part of a, the politics of knowledge creation and authority? Sure, there, there is all that. Yes, there are, there are all these factors that are coming in, but it's also an issue of how science is done. You know, in the West, one of the things that people are, are using to do dose estimates is risk factor epidemiology. Risk factor epidemiology is all about reconstructing doses, reconstructing where people were, and then extrapolating the dose, right? Looking at the dose and then extrapolating the risk of particular disease, most of it cancer, right? Particular kinds of thyroid cancer, let's say, right? It's based on statistics, it's about producing statistics. What a lot of the Soviet studies were early on were kind of ecological studies. So they were estimating um, health risks by comparing, let's say, a control group to, ex to an experimental group and seeing are there, you know, are there, are people are suffering from different sorts of diseases? And if they are, what are they? Let's make a list. And that's what, in effect, Kynar syndrome is. It lists all sorts of things from nosebleeds to health uh, to skin conditions to eczemas, to uh, cancers, to heart problems, dis uh, you know, depression, so on and so forth, as being included part of that syndrome, a cluster of diseases, right? By comparing the exposed groups to groups that were, you know, 300, 400 miles somewhere else, people who were not exposed to radioactivity. So what I was saying, and obviously it didn't come out quite right, is that what the Soviets are finding there is that they're finding effect. Not only are they finding effect, what they're finding is that damage is being transmitted from one generation to the next, which is something that 
the Western Hiroshima Nagasaki based studies have not been able to replicate. So Yuri Dubrova's study that comes out in uh, early 2000s on the semi-Palatinx populations um, was reproduced among the Japanese and Hiroshima survivors and their children, right? And similar things were not found there. And finally, you know, you're looking at this particular case that is some respects an outlier to the cases we know more generally. Um, so how does the, this Koyan case help us understand the, the broader legacies of nuclear testings and, and, and disasters? Like what, what can you say generally from looking specifically at this case? Well, first things first, um, all different people understand radiation exposure and its effects on their bodies um, differently in many ways. Second, uh, there is no one way of knowing radiation or its effects. Um, and there are debates um, about that, and that includes among scientists. Um, so those are certainly the, the sort of big two conclusions, right? The other one is that, is that no matter how many borders we draw, uh, zones of exclusion we create, um, no matter how many different ways we talk about these zones as existing somewhere out there, um, radioactive landscapes are not set in one place. That in essence, radioactivity itself and those elements and that history migrates outside of the site itself, uh, but around the world as well. That was Magdalena Stokowski an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and a faculty associate at the Walker Institute for International Studies at the University of South Carolina. She's the author of several articles, most recently, Radiophobia Had to Be Reinvented, published in Culture, Theory, and Critique in 2017, and Life on an Atomic Collective, the Post-Soviet Retreat of the State in Rural Kazakhstan, published in Etudes Royales in 2017. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks, as always, to my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
my line about nothing. Why won't you go get you a dollar or something? Don't hang with a who line for nothing. I see that we different. You riding, I double. I don't do discussions. I'm bragging about hundreds. Don't go to your places. I know that they sunken. Don't call me your brother. I barely could trust you. I talk to a shorty. She bagging the bucket. And I'ma need all of my dollars on corporate. So hand me the money. I divvy the pot. I'ma give all of my people a portion to build them a fortune. I'm flipping the vibe. I can't be mixy when iffy the vibe. And 40 on 50 is really the time. Why is you all on my phone like you want me? Like you wasn't pushing the kid to the side. I don't know if you. Thinking I'm blind, close on my crosses and dead on my eyes. Done with your efforts, I'm dealing with pressures. I know it's a lesson that's worth it the wise. Dubbing the mixes, I'm mixing. I know I've been missing. I needed some personal time. Full of